They had, yeah, they they have limited connectivity to the rest of the grid. But you know, to your point about mutual assistance, some of that limited connectivity was was able to bring in some electricity that was actually coming from Canadian provinces right down into to Texas to to try really, and, and welcome help. Welcome to Canusa Street, a podcast at the intersection of the issues and policies between Canada and the United States. Here are your hosts, Scotty Greenwood and Chris Sands. Welcome back to Canusa Street, everybody. I'm Scotty Greenwood with the Canadian American Business Council, and I'm joined by my electrifying colleague, Professor Chris Sands of the Woodrow Wilson Center. Hey, Chris. Hi, Scotty. How are you doing? I'm well, thank you. Well, that's shocking. I said electrifying. (laughs) Chris says shocking. Shocking because we're going to have a wonderful conversation today about something a lot of us here in Canada and the United States take for granted, which is electricity. And a lot of us also don't realize how integrated our electricity grids are and what that means for our economy, our prosperity, and our collaboration together, our meaning the U.S. and Canada. So I'm excited about our fabulous guest. You're going to introduce him properly, but Francis Bradley not only has his own distinguished and wonderful professional career, but also his organization is a member of the Canadian American Business Council. So that's extra points and a gold star. Uh, We collaborated recently on a conversation at the Canadian Embassy on Canada-U.S. electrification. So maybe we'll get into that a little bit as well, because everybody wasn't able to go. But Chris, how about you introduce our guest properly? It is a pleasure. And um, and I think you've hit us with the top line. Francis Bradley is the president and chief executive officer of Electricity Canada, founded in 1891. You weren't the president then, Francis, I don't think. Uh, electricity. He was an intern back in those <laughs> days. <laughs> well, it's good to start and work your way up. Uh, electricity Canada, which is formerly known as the Canadian Electricity Association, is the national voice for sustainable electricity for its members and the customers they serve as the country Canada works toward net zero by a 2050 future. He's also uh, a representative at the North American Electric Reliability Corporations, that's NERC, member representatives committee and on their board of trustees. He represents Electricity Canada and advocates strongly for members and their activities related to electricity reliability organization enterprise and its role in ensuring the reliability and the security of the North American bulk power system. That's that integration you're talking about, Scotty. But one of the things that uh, will keep me on my toes today is that back in 2019, Francis created and he continues to host the Flux Capacitor, uh, straight out of Back to the Future, uh, I think. Um, it's a podcast series featuring discussions about the future of electricity with CEOs, regulators, political figures, and leaders from civil society. And the Flux Capacitor just uh, aired, I think, episode 64. So uh, it's a very long series. Uh, but I know that we're not just interviewing an expert in the subject matter, but we're also interviewing a podcast ninja. So uh, I'll be on my toes. Welcome, Mr. Bradley. Wow, you're a bit ahead of us. We're in the 50s, right, Chris? I can't remember. We're in the 50s, yes. Um, uh, in my case, age-wise as well. 
<laughs> well, we are excited for this conversation. You know, I mentioned at the beginning that here in Canada, United States, we take it for granted when we wake up in the morning and turn on the light that there's actually a light going to be there. But there's a lot that goes into that, a lot of interconnectivity back and forth across the Canada-US border that people might not think about. So maybe we could start there, Francis. What is the state of the Canada-US relationship when it comes to electricity and power? Yeah, really interesting. You know, as as uh, you know, as you noted, it's something that that people uh, take for granted. It's one of the challenges, frankly, uh, when uh, kind of operating in the advocacy space with respect to electricity, because people do just generally take it for granted uh, and don't usually think about it much, unless. Oh, I don't know. Uh, the power goes out, uh, or something strange happens to to people's bills. But yeah, that electricity relationship between Canada and the United States uh, goes back 114 years. So the first transmission line between Canada and the United States was uh, was uh, operational in 1909. Uh, but it's been an evolving relationship, and it'd be it'd be uh, I think interesting to drill down on some of those pieces. Originally, it was all about the commercial relationship. Uh, it was just opportunities. Uh, from you know neighboring jurisdictions uh, to buy and sell uh, electricity because the commercial opportunity existed. Um, it, it is increasingly now that we've got you know 35 interconnections between the two countries. It it, it became more uh, as well about the reliability uh, and the greater reliability we get with the greater interconnectivity of the grid. So you know the ability uh, to from from one region to lean on uh, another region has been you know a significant boon to uh, reliability overall. And it's sort of the third aspect to, to this, uh, and the one that I think is going to become increasingly important, uh, is the, you know, the environmental attributes and the environmental benefits as a result of that, uh, as a result of that trade. Uh, and, you know, I think, I think all three of those are, are going to uh, significantly increase over time. But increasingly, people, are, I think, are going to focus on um, what is the environmental uh, impact of uh, that electricity trade, particularly, you know, as, as, as we move into uh, a net zero future. Well, absolutely. And the other thing is that a study in contrast, when I think about electricity in other parts of the world today, it's weaponized, right? When you think about how much we take it for granted, you look at our friends, brothers and sisters in Ukraine who don't have the ability to turn on the lights or charge their phones or do the basic things that we do every single day. And so we are fortunate. We should understand that um, and understand the contrast. So as you mentioned, Francis, energy transition, net zero, it's not just about the fact that we turn on the lights every day and we get power, but where does it come from? Because back a hundred and something years ago, when it first started, it would have been coal, right? Maybe wood, but talk to us about where does our electricity come from and what does the future look like? Yeah, because where it comes from is changing. Uh, absolutely, as as as, uh, as we look at the that energy transition, and yeah, uh, you know, a hundred odd years ago, um, uh, it was a little different here, uh, and it continues to be a little different generally in Canada. Uh, the uh, uh, you know the first interconnections were primarily uh, hydro ones in Canada, bringing power down into into uh, into markets uh, uh, in the United States. It's- hydro, you said. Let's pause on that. 
Meaning damming waterways and collecting yeah. renewable power. Yeah, where where uh, you know more than sixty percent of electricity today in Canada comes from uh, water spinning turbines uh, in hydroelectric plants. Yeah. Um, but you know, eighty-two percent of the electricity being produced in in Canada today is from non-emitting sources. And so you know, as, as it is a, a different mix uh, than when one sees uh, in the United States. But we have very similar uh, objectives and aspirations. So the, the aspiration here in Canada is for the economy to be net zero uh, by 2050. And then specifically for the electricity grid, uh, the the objective that the, the federal government here has is to have a net zero electricity grid by the end of 2035, which um, on the day that we're recording this, and you can see big, big, uh, on, on the clock, on my, my countdown clock on the wall, it's 4,731 days uh, until we're supposed to have a net zero uh, electricity system in Canada, um, but you know that 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 is going to be taking place at the same time that that uh, uh, both uh, federally and at the state level there are objectives with respect to the energy transition across the United States uh, as well. So you know how we coordinate our energy transition and how uh, the United States uh, and individual states coordinate their energy transition is going to be really important that that is done in a manner. Uh, that that uh, re sort of ensures that we don't lose uh, all of those things that we talked about earlier, the financial benefits, uh, the reliability benefits, uh, and the environmental benefits of that uh, of that trade relationship between the two. Um, uh, Francis, if I could uh, ask you a question that's sort of new, I've been noodling on a little bit. I remember when um, we went into the pandemic, one of the things that 3M said about a personal protective equipment uh, that they were producing, you remember there's a bit of an issue there, was it wasn't really a supply problem that helped, got them in trouble. It was a demand surge. And so understanding what had happened, it wasn't really they couldn't deliver. It was just that suddenly a lot more people wanted personal protective equipment because of the pandemic. And I think about that in electricity terms. Are we ready or can we be ready, even as we're trying to get to net zero, for a demand surge that may come if more people have electric vehicles, if more people are looking to move away from fossil fuels. So it seems like it's a dual challenge, isn't it? It's not just greening the grid we have, but it's growing the grid we have and keeping it green at the same time. Or maybe I don't understand this, right? This is your field. So I'll, I'll tell me if I'm wrong or, or maybe add some sophistication to that very simple uh, version of it. Well, actually, that, that you've nailed it. Uh, I mean, you've 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 gone really to the heart of the of, of the issue here, Chris. And that is, at the same time, uh, we're we're looking to decarbonize the electricity uh, system, and uh, we're looking specifically to electricity to to be the vehicle to decarbonize the rest of the economy. So from a Canadian uh, perspective, for example, the expectation is we're going to need uh, an electricity system that's two to three times larger than it is today. Uh, and the reason why we talk about two to three times is we probably need twice as much clean electricity um, uh, to be, we need to be able to produce twice as much clean electricity. But to get twice as much clean electricity, we're going to have to build uh, three times, not twice as much, because a lot of the new generation is going to be non-dispatchable um, uh, generation. So wind and solar uh, that don't run 24-7. Uh, uh, and so, uh, you know, it does sort of change uh, and impact the build out. 
Now, um, with respect to what uh, the potential impact would be with the demand surge, uh, it, it is thankfully not going to be like um, uh, PPEs in March 2020, um, because uh, we, we've kind of got a general sense of what that surge uh, is going to look like. And so, you know, for example, I, I know Brian Kingston was was uh, one of the guests on the podcast um, uh, a couple of months Canadian ago. Canadian Auto Manufacturers Association. Yes. Yeah, right. And so so like we, we've got... A, a pretty good sense uh, what the uh, the the uh, electric vehicle rollout is going to look like in this country. So let me take that as an example because I know you've you've talked about uh, EVs in the past. Um, mm-hmm. It's not going to happen tomorrow. Uh, it is going to be a, a very gradual uh, uh, phase in. And so, like, I get questions all the time uh, from people about, oh, well, what about the distribution network? How is that suddenly going to be able to uh, uh, provide electricity for everybody who has an electric vehicle? Well, everybody's not going to have an electric vehicle from one day to the next. Um, this is going to be, I mean, we've got, we've got uh, a net, uh, um, uh, we've got electric vehicle targets here in this country, but they will be rolling out over time. Uh, and anybody who has an, uh, you know, uh, an internal combustion engine now, uh, they'll be using it until the end of its useful life. And so thankfully um, the electrification of, of many parts of the economy is not going to be a rheostat where it switches on or switches off. It's going to be, a, a gradual change, and so we 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 built it out. But like you know, when I talk about the the there's going to be a need for a, a, a doubling of clean electricity uh, between now and 2050. That sounds really big, but if you actually you know start taking that apart, what does that mean? Well, that means we need to grow it about you know 3.1, 3.2 percent a year. Okay, well that's doable. Right, but but it all but it means that we need to be doing it. We need to be doing it now, uh, and that's great if we're actually growing at three to four percent a year right now. But we're not, and so one of the big challenges is to ensure that we uh, we we get on with the significant build out that needs to take place. Absolutely, and and uh, now my next question really goes back to something you'll remember. I think Scotty will as well, which is two thousand three, and in two thousand three we had a station that went down. I think in Ohio. But for a few days, and we were all trying to figure out what what had caused this system failure. And we had a lot of blackouts for the Midwest, for New England, I think even parts of Ontario. Um, And it was a wake-up call for a lot of people how interconnected our grids were and how a problem could could go from one country to the other. And I think we falsely accused Canada of being at fault, but you weren't um, on that, just for the record. It was was tree trimming in in Ohio, I believe. (laughs) I think so. And, yeah. and I remember that Quebec wasn't affected because they had had a more insulated grid. They weren't sort of on the same problem. So I wonder if if now, oh, almost, I guess that's 20 years later, are we moving towards the kind of interconnectivity that gives us more grid resilience so that when something does happen, because things do happen, um, we can lean on each other and keep the power going uh, in, in a time like that where you have a disruption? Yeah, I think I think we are, Chris. I, I think uh, a lot has changed since since uh, since two thousand three. Um, uh, there were a lot of lessons learned uh, from uh, the experience of, of that uh, that uh, outage uh, in in two thousand three uh, in the United States. We saw eventually the passage of the uh, the Energy Policy Act of two thousand five uh, that uh, established NERC as the electric reliability organization, and it moved us into a regime of mandatory reliability standards. You know, when you look back. Gee, uh, before 2005, 
reliability standards were optional. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, that's 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 a, a pretty significant change, uh, number one. Number two, we, we also see a lot of new technologies that have rolled out. So in addition to now having mandatory standards uh, when, when they weren't necessarily uh, being followed by everybody in the past, uh, we're also seeing, uh, you know, some pretty significant changes uh, in terms of resiliency uh, at the bulk power uh, level, but but also down into distribution networks and for, you know, right down to individual customers. Uh, and so, you know, smart grid technologies, uh, um, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of what, what's taking place uh, on the ground is going to result in in, in far greater uh, uh, stability and reliability for the individual customer. But like, I mean, the bottom line on all of this is there, there was uh, there was a Canada U.S. task force that was put in place in 2003 that came up with a, a dozens of recommendations. And uh, to my mind, I think all of them were were implemented. So, yeah, uh, 2003 was very problematic, but it was uh, not only a wake up call, but it was also an opportunity to figure out how we can get better uh, and how we can have a more reliable system. You know, one of the things you point to in this interconnectivity of Canada, United States, and I want to make an argument that it's a good thing. um, But you don't have to go all the way back to 2003. We want to remind our listeners, and Francis, I'd love you to react to this uh, and give your thoughts of when it was uh, unfolding a few years ago. But in February of 2021, uh, something happened that reminds us of this. We're recording now. It's in the winter today. It's pretty cold in North America in a lot of places in northern North America. But in February of 2021, the state of Texas endured a major power crisis There were three severe storms in that month that triggered the worst infrastructure failure maybe in Texas history, and it led to shortages of water, food, heat, and more than four and a half million homes and businesses were left without power, some for days, some for longer. More than 100 people were killed directly or indirectly, according to some estimates. So this was a big deal. And what strikes me is that Texas, in its wisdom, decided we don't want to be attached to the national power grid. They didn't want the federal oversight. They didn't want Washington, D.C. in their business. And, you know, there was a big crisis. So, Francis, we'd love your thoughts. What was going through your mind during that terrible time? And does it argue for Canada and the United States uh, to help each other? When there's wind blowing in Minnesota, we can send it up to Canada. When there's water flowing in BC, you can send it down to us. Um, so talk to us about interconnectivity and what were you were thinking when Texas happened uh, because it wasn't interconnected. Yeah, yeah I, I think it was it was shocking to anybody that was was paying close attention uh, to it. It was not the first time, unfortunately. I mean, there had been previous incidents. Uh, there had been uh, reports that recommended changes uh, from an operational standpoint that had not been implemented, frankly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so, um, you know, the the, the first uh, first the first issue is uh, maybe some of the the pain and suffering could have been avoided uh, had uh, the recommendations from. Pre- Previous incidents uh, been uh, implemented. They had, yeah, they they have limited connectivity uh, to the rest of the grid. Um, but you know, to your point about mutual assistance, um, uh, some of that limited connectivity uh, was was able to bring in uh, some electricity that was actually coming from Canadian provinces right down into to Texas to to try really? and and help them. Yeah, help them uh, and and to assist them. It was it was uh, you know of all places uh, Saskatchewan, uh, which is not known as a big exporter. They did 
have excess capacity that week, uh, and they were moving, um, uh, you know, everything they could, uh, like 200 megawatts, down uh, into the market, and, and some of that was making its way uh, way into Texas. But you know, we we've got a history, and, and uh, Scotty, you and I have talked about this uh, extensively in the past of this mutual assistance between the the, yeah. the two systems that goes back it goes back a century, uh, and so you know, anytime there is a, a, a major storm, you know, think hurric- Hurricane Sandy. Uh, you know, the recovery yeah, from Hurricane Sandy mm-hmm. was all kinds of Canadian uh, crews that were down uh, and providing assistance. Uh, the, the 1998 ice storm. I was just going to talk about that. And I had just moved to Canada uh, as a newly minted U.S. diplomat and the ice storm happened. And the thing that a lot of farmers were worried about was uh, milking their cows because, you know, a lot of these cow parlors are uh power generated. Um, You have these electric milking devices and things like that. So you got to get the cows milked. And then once you have the milk, you've got to keep it cold. Um, uh, It was winter, but you still have to keep it cold. So they were converting it to milk powder to store it longer um, during the power shortage. But that was a crazy time. And, uh, you know, that was that was a very nice welcome to Canada for me, you know? <laughs> well, uh, what you would have seen on uh, on the streets, uh, you know, in, in and around eastern Ontario uh, and in Quebec were a lot of utility crews that, that uh, had come up from uh, the United States. So it isn't yeah. just Canadian crews uh, that go down during Hurricane Sandy. Uh, it's American crews that, that, uh, that come up here. So whenever uh, there are, are uh, reliability issues, we have... Have these mutual assistance agreements, uh, and the crews move back and forth across the border when these emergencies occur. Unfortunately, these emergencies are occurring. These these weather-related emergencies are occurring more frequently. Um, they're they're more severe. Uh, that's the bad news. The good news is, you know, we've kind of got this 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 history, and it's part of the culture that mutual assistance is 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 how the system works. But you know, in terms of how you coordinate uh, uh, between regions more broadly, um, you know, there's a lot of great examples today, but then also let's project into the future. So today is, as, a, as an example, um, yeah, there is a transmission line between uh, Manitoba and Minnesota uh, yeah. that that uh, actually, yes, it, it does provide the ability for um, hydroelectric uh, power from uh, Canada to uh, move into uh, U.S. markets, but it also allows for uh, essentially when the wind is blowing in the Midwest, uh, more than and the system can absorb when they're overproducing, uh, the electricity flows north. And so, so those, those reservoirs in Manitoba, for example, act as batteries uh, when we're overproducing uh, in the Midwest for wind. That may be what our future in North America overall looks like, a future integrated grid where if you start thinking about what's 2040 and 2050 going to look like, how are we going to be able to meet those targets? Offshore wind? Yeah, absolutely. But how do you back up offshore wind? Um, if you're in, uh, you know, in the, on the uh, Atlantic seaboard, uh, looking out to 2050, maybe the offshore wind is going to be backed up through transmission into Quebec and Quebec's reservoirs. Uh, you know, the same may be true on the West Coast. This is is the is the interconnectivity actually going to give us the ability to unlock even more wind and solar uh, really throughout North America? Uh, so it's it's a it's a uh, a I think more. Uh, interconnected and more robust grid out to 2050, not less so. So, so I, I think the electricity relationship is only going to increase because of those the ability for uh, the systems to be complementary. 
So, you know, yeah. you know, we hear we hear a lot about you know let's uh, let, we'll follow the sun, larger larger grids across North America. We'll follow the sun. We'll follow the wind. Uh, but also from a north to south standpoint, we've got the ability for uh, you know reservoirs in the north to act as as storage as well. So I think I think that's only going to increase, not decrease in the future. And when you say the reservoir can act as a battery. What that means is you're not using the water to produce hydroelectric, so you're powering your grid with the wind coming up from Minnesota. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so even even, t- even today, Scotty, if you look at uh, the statistics in terms of exports uh, and imports of electricity, you'll see that the, it is increasingly a two-way street. Um, so that so that uh, there are uh, uh, growing imports of electricity from the United States into Canada, and that tends to be when there's overproduction um, and uh, the inability for the markets to 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 take that power, uh, and so like that that uh, gives us the ability to to serve more customers uh, without having to build more uh, increasingly uh, more infrastructure. It makes for a far more efficient grid overall. It lowers costs uh, right across the board, and you know there's been some. Some some studies uh, that have taken place that that have tried to, to quantify that. The most recent one was a study that was done in uh, in 2020 by the New York uh, ISO that found that even today that free flowing uh, ties uh, between Ontario and the New York ISO uh, resulted in savings of about 43 million dollars to the New York ISO market in their in their day ahead market. So um, wow. If that's the benefit we have today, what will be the benefit in the future when we're going to be building out, you know, uh, a lot more uh, solar in the middle of the continent and offshore wind on both ends, and we're able to to uh, you know essentially connect uh, those uh, those systems. Yeah, so this is interesting. We're going to take a little break. And when we come back, we've talked a lot about what Mother Nature can do for us when uh, solar and other power uh, comes, but also during ice storms and whatever. When we come back after the break, Francis, I'd love to talk to you and hear what you're thinking about other threats to the grid that are created by people, not Mother Nature, like cyber threats um, and things like that. So we'll talk soon. Are you red, white, and blue, or just red and white? Beaver or bald eagle? Ryan Reynolds or JLo? Canusa Street, a masterclass in cross-border relations. This is where Canada and the United States intersect on the policies and issues of our two great nations. But you know that already. That's why you're here. The question is, if you want more of this bilateral bonanza delivered directly to your inbox, and you know you do, How about signing up for Scotty Greenwood's weekly email updates on Canada-U.S. relations? Head to cabc.co to sign up today. And now back to Canusa Street. Uh, We are here talking today to Francis Bradley, who's the president and CEO of uh, uh, Electricity Canada, the former Canadian Electricity Association. And when we took the break, Scotty was about to ask a big question. So I'm over to you, Scotty. (laughs) Thanks, Chris. Francis, we were talking about things that are made by Mother Nature uh, that impact our electricity system, uh, but also so threats from threats from ice storms and opportunities from solar and wind, things like that, severe weather, what happens to the grid. But now equally, and I know you've thought a lot about this and you've advised governments on this, so I'd love for you to kind of enlighten us. What about threats to our infrastructure and our grid that come from cyber attacks? And how big of a deal is that? 
And what are we going to do to protect ourselves? Yeah, no, that's a fantastic question. And, you know, um, as you said, uh, people weren't thinking about this in 1998, but there was a, there was actually a small number of us that were starting to think about this in 1998 when we were thinking about, uh, wait for it, Y2K. Uh, oh, that's right. <laughs> something, yes. Yeah. I mean, it's been a, a long time since anybody had talked about Y2K, but uh, we were starting our, our preparations for like uh, the Y2K. They, you know, they were calling it the millennium bug. And, but we began that work back in 1998. But what it did is is it it uh, uh, began to get us to focus on, uh, first off, the dependencies on, uh, on, on cyber systems, uh, even 25 years ago, uh, and then increasingly a greater appreciation appreciation uh, of what those the the, the impacts could be uh, in the event of uh, you know malicious actors doing something with respect to our, our cyber systems so that 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 was something I began uh, uh, getting involved in in 1998 um, and then you know early in the in the 2000s it also became uh, a a topic of, of uh, some academic pursuits of mine uh, at Carleton University in in, uh, in Ottawa so I spent a good 20 years um, uh, working on security files and cybersecurity files. Uh, and let me tell you, boy, that's something else that's changed quite significantly. Um, on the one hand, the threat environment for cyber uh, has been evolving and it continues to evolve. It's a, a very significant uh, concern for us. Uh, I, you know, I, I, I keep pointing folks to 2015 as kind of that was the year we crossed the Rubicon. Uh, so uh, up until Why? 20... Well, up until 2015, I was I was always able to say, "Yep, cyber. It's something that we're focused on." But the good news is, uh, we've never seen a cyber attack that took out electricity service to customers. Well, that was until 2015, um, yeah. when Russia did that in the Ukraine, uh, and so. Right. All right there, there's there's your use case where you can actually through a cyber attack uh, um, uh, uh, impact uh, the the service uh, to customers. But it was also a signal that uh, increasingly state and state uh, backed actors are getting involved in this space as well. They uh, are very sophisticated and increasingly sophisticated, and so our approach to uh, 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 to cyber defense needs to be equally sophisticated. And I think we've done that. I mean, we've created some uh, really uh, uh, solid uh, partnerships. Um, uh, certainly, you know, in, in Canada, I've been involved in quite a few of them. And on a North American basis, we have something called the Electricity Subsector Coordinating Council, the ESCC, uh, that for you know, seven, eight years now has uh, been uh, uh, a coordinating group of CEOs. So this this is this this isn't this isn't IT folks. Uh, these are the yeah. CEOs of the largest companies uh, in the United States, with uh, four of us Canadians sitting around the table, uh, uh, coordinating our response to a variety of threats. And so uh, sometimes it's it's physical threats, um, but also to, to to cyber threats. And so the, the like the approach. Um, uh, has become uh, uh, more collaborative. Uh, the approach has become more sophisticated as well, but it has to. Uh, and, you know, again, look into the future. Uh, you know, I talked about some of the, the bright future of, of, of our ability to coordinate our, uh, um, you know, our, 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 our generation uh, and 
At the same time, though, uh, we're looking at a future where the cyber threats are going to get more, uh, uh, you know, uh, more more difficult a- as well, because uh, it isn't just uh, sort of the, you know, the consumer IT and consumer electronics space that's going to be you know, using new tools like artificial intelligence and and uh, 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 and quantum computing. Uh, the people that want to do harm to our networks, not just electricity, but all networks, are going to have access to those tools as well. So we're, we're yeah. never going to be at a point where we're able to say, oh, okay, we're done. Uh, we've, we fixed cybersecurity, uh, and so we can move on to other things, because the threat is only going to continue to increase. And so uh, you know, we'll have to be ever vigilant on this one. Absolutely. When I asked you about cyber, you mentioned Y2K, and it just dawned on me that some of our listeners might not all get that reference. Um because they weren't alive during the year 2000. So just to unpack it for half a second, Y2K refers to the year 2000. And the worry at the time in the run-up, so this is the late 90s, that all of a sudden every computer was going to stop working because it doesn't know three zeros in a row. So there was all of this preparation for a doomsday scenario because it wasn't clear whether or not the computers of the world were going to be able to deal with uh, the clock turning over to zero, zero, zero. So when we say Y2K, that's what we mean. Let me ask you one more and then I'll turn it back to Chris. So we were thinking about the threats and we didn't mention opportunities. That's something we want to talk about. There's a lot of excitement now um, in the power generation world about green hydrogen and blue hydrogen and brown hydrogen and all of all of that. And uh, you know, funny enough, this was coming up in the State of the Union address, like back when George W. Bush was president. And now we're talking about it now again. Um, so, talk to us about your thoughts on hydrogen yeah well you know um uh, it's it's uh, it used to be a little bit like um fusion energy right both hydrogen and fusion energy were just around the corner uh the difference though is i, I think um while fusion energy is still just beyond the horizon uh, hydrogen is almost here uh, 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 you know, we, we, we've seen, uh, you know, uh, uh, a significant first off increase, uh, by a, a lot of players, uh, countries, uh, companies, we're seeing investments, uh, in, uh, in the technology. Um, we, we're not yet at the point where we're seeing significant, uh, rollout in transportation, but I, I suspect, I suspect we're going to see some pretty significant rollout, uh, when, when, uh, you know, when we, uh, when we, we look ahead, uh, a number of years, uh, you know, with fuel cell vehicles, uh, uh, as the you know as the technology improves and increases. But I mean, the other uh, side of this is is you know, electricity is 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 at some in some cases it's difficult to move and it's difficult to to mm-hmm. transmit and it's it's nearly impossible to store in large scale. But right. if you convert it to hydrogen, if you convert energy to hydrogen, that you, that can be stored. It can be piped. Um, it can be. You can you can you can convert it to uh, ammonia and put it in tankers and ship it around the world. Uh, and that that's basically uh, you know electricity waiting to be uncracked. Um, and and so uh, you know the 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 uh, hydrogen revolution uh, I believe is upon us. Un- unlike fusion, that is that is probably still uh, just uh, beyond. Beyond uh, you know, beyond the uh, beyond the horizon, uh, and it's you know something that that both uh, your government and the government here in Ottawa have a, a great deal of interest in. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and we know that there's there's uh, governments elsewhere uh, that have an interest in that as well. Uh, we had the yeah. Chancellor of Germany that was uh, here in Canada uh, a couple of months ago that was talking about the possibility of a, a clean hydrogen project in Newfoundland uh, and Labrador uh, that, that would look at developing uh, uh, clean hydrogen uh, from wind uh, and uh, essentially producing it for the European marketplace. So so we're we're very close to this being a, a full-blown revolution uh, and it'll be interesting to see where it goes. Absolutely. And if you can create electricity or energy when the byproduct is air or water, that sounds pretty good as opposed yeah. to some other things that are byproducts. Over to you, Chris. Yeah, uh, thank you. This has been fascinating. And and Francis, I, I know that with all the references to Y2K and George H.W. Bush, we may have scared off younger listeners, but we do have some. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about workforce. Um, you know, whether it's the people who work on the lines and get our electricity back up, it seems we've been on a long stretch where we kind of downgraded people who work with their hands and, you know, engineers. We've been trying to get STEM going again. Can you talk a little bit about whether we have the workforce we need for the future that you've described and, and what we what we can do to honor those professions, pay them properly and really attract people into the sector? Yeah, and those are those are really really uh, uh, critical questions, Chris. Uh, um, you know, uh, first off, with respect to uh, to uh, some of the, some of the trades, that's been a significant focus um, of uh, of our organization uh, for for quite some time. Um, uh, we launched uh, a separate organization that spends all of their time focused on these issues called uh, uh, Electricity Human Resources Canada. Uh, so you know, uh, they're very much focused on what is the what is the workforce of the future going to look like? What can we do as a sector to ensure that we have uh, people moving into those roles? Um, But, you know, uh, among the things that that we've seen uh, is a one, a clear uh, indication that that the composition of that workforce is going to change. The kind of people that are going to be required uh, is going to change, uh, number one. And then number two, we're going to need a, ho- a lot more people. Um, you know, if, if we're talking about a, a sector that's going to have to, uh, you know, double or triple in size, uh, there's going to be a requirement for many, many more people. Um, so, you know, how do we how do we address that? Well, we, you know, we've got, we've got a people challenge today. Uh, and, you know, we're seeing that right across the economy. It isn't just specific to electricity, but but certainly, uh, you know, we're challenged, uh, just like every other sector is challenged. That talent pool that you would draw upon is is, is like a puddle right now. Uh, it is, is the pool has, has shrunk so much, at least on the on the short term. So we're very concerned about the, you know, the ability to ensure uh, that we're going to have enough people and the right people. And so we're, you know, very actively engaged in discussions with the, 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 the government of Canada, uh, actively engaged uh, with discussions uh, with colleges and universities and trade schools uh, to to ensure that we're going to be training uh, sufficient people in that space. Um, and it is, you know, it is certainly something that is very top of mind uh, with the, the folks in the government of Canada. We're, uh, as a country, uh, uh, significantly increasing the number uh, of uh, immigrants that are being welcomed. I was just going to say that. Yeah, we did a whole series of podcasts on immigration, and I'm glad you mentioned it, Francis. A big part of the solution right across the sectors is to get more people into jobs, more people in the United States and Canada that can do the jobs. And immigration has got to be part of that. Yeah. Well, look, we are so grateful to you. We're coming towards the end of our time here, but I just want to kick it over to Francis to ask if there's one key message that you want to leave our listeners with. Um, Our listeners, of course, care mostly about the Canada-U.S. relationship. But from your point of view, what do you think people need to know that maybe they don't? Yeah, uh, well, um, 
you know, the, the, the message that I'm increasingly telling people specifically in Canada is, uh, you know, that challenge uh, of the, uh, you know, 4,731 days left until this ele- the electricity sector needs to be non-emitting, that, that we have to get on with uh, building that system. We need to build it and we need to, to build it today. From a North American perspective, um, uh, it's a very similar message. And that is, let's continue to build that uh, North American uh, electricity relationship because, the 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 mutually beneficial uh, 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 results of the relationship over the last 114 years uh, are are only going to grow, but only if we we take the time to make sure that we nurture that relationship, uh, we foster that relationship, figure out how we can uh, continue to 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 ensure that uh, that we grow it because you know that that future where both Canada and the U.S. are are able to optimize each other's resources is something that will result in huge benefits to the customers in both countries. And, and that's, in the end, that's, that's what we're here for. We're here for the uh, for the end customer. We couldn't have said it better ourselves. <laughs> we think it's terrific to collaborate in Canada, United States, and Mexico. And we'll see a lot more and talk about a lot more of the bilateral collaboration right across sectors when President Biden travels to Canada in several weeks from now. And so we'll be talking even more about that And Francis, we love it when you come to D.C. So next time you come, come back to Canusa Street. We'll all be in the studio together and we can talk further about it. Thank you so much for joining us. Spectacular. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me in. And for our listeners who have really liked what they've been hearing, we remind everyone that Francis has his own podcast, The Flux Capacitor, available anywhere respectable podcasts can be found. So uh, you can get more Francis uh, by checking out his podcast and... uh, uh, thanks for coming. You were a real pro. I was impressed. Well, thank you, Chris. And and, and it's a Canadian podcast, so the web address is thefluxcapacitor.ca. .ca. There you go. Tricky, tricky. <laughs> That's excellent. Fra- Francis, I have the same problem in reverse. I'm always telling people how to find my email, which is at wilsoncenter.org. The problem is we spell center like Americans. I see your URLs and I raise you one more because ours is cabc.co. So when I text it to people, I have to be really clear that it's not a typo. (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) Well, Chris, I'm not sure if everybody realizes how our grid is connected back and forth across the Canada-US border. So it's kind of good to remind ourselves of that and how useful it is in the good times and in the tough times. Oh, absolutely. And 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 it's one of those things of modern life we don't realize, you know, how tenuous some of the connections that we have are. And you just see people lose their electric power and they very quickly lose their minds. It's a, it's a real it's a real need, almost a basic requirement. And the fact that Canada is a reliable partner on electricity that we're now starting to use each other's reservoirs for batteries, that we're addressing seasonality and creating uh, an additional resilience. Uh, that That's all good news um, if we have the people to keep that system maintained. And that's, I really hope we can inspire more people to go into the field, not just to not just to do solar and wind, but to deal with the grid itself. It's so important. It's what ties us together in many ways. Absolutely. And it also reminds us that we have to resist protectionism. I can remember having conversations with some New England elected officials who will remain nameless um, about clean, green, renewable hydro coming from Quebec into New England. And, you know, that was pretty controversial for many years. What they said to me is, 
I don't want lower cost, low carbon electricity coming from Canada that we don't produce ourselves. We don't want to import it from somewhere else. We don't want to transport it through our territory to serve some other jurisdiction. Uh, so it's important that we have these conversations um, because it can quickly become controversial going in either direction, north or south of the Canada-US border. So I'm grateful for all the work uh, that Electricity Canada, Francis and his colleagues are doing. It's important that we play and we can play a small role at the Canadian American Business Council um, and on Canusa Street and talking about the Canada-US border because, you know, we're, we're better together when we're helping each other. And if we were both on our own, we'd be worse off. Yes. And now that we've finally done an episode about electricity, we can claim to be a current affairs show. Haha, <laughs> but I'm bump. We're here till Thursday, folks. Try a meal. <laughs> Always good to have you on Canusa Street, my friend. Great to see you too, Scotty. But we're going to have to get better writers. <laughs> Probably true. See you next time. <laughs> All right. See you too. This podcast is brought to you by the Canadian American Business Council and the Wilson Center. If you like this episode, help others find our show and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. <laughs>